Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Rabbi Pinchas Landis. Rabbi Landis is an acclaimed motivational speaker, author, and educator. Rabbi Landis attended Ner, Ner Israel Rabbinical College, or Sameach Yeshiva, Yeshiva University, and Johns Hopkins University. Rabbi Landis serves as the director of Jewish Anytime, as you can see in the background, which is an online learning platform. He is also the director of Partners Cleveland, a nonprofit enterprise focused on inspiring the Jewish community in Ohio. Rabbi Landis's forthcoming book, Today in Jewish History, is soon to be released uh, and published by Mosaica Press. And today we will be discussing the always compelling and fascinating topic, broad topic of the history of Zionism. Rabbi Landis, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it very much. Rabbi Lieberman, thank you for having me. Um, it's really just a true pleasure to be here. Um, I'm not sure how many people you had to go through till you got to me, because when I look at the other esteemed uh, speakers you've had, Rabbi Wine and Rabbi Jacobson and Rabbi Spiro, um, I hardly consider myself equal to that list. So, uh, But I, I do really thank you for the opportunity, and I'm really looking forward to this topic. It's, it's a topic I'm very passionate about, and I've been spending a lot of, a lot of energy on lately. So, uh, so uh, I'm ready, ready to dive right in when you are. Okay. Again, thank you so much. Let's just go back... Um... There's always a question of where do you start when discussing the history of Zionism. Um, but let's start and look at um, the situation in the mid-1800s in what is now called the Old Yishuv. What is the state of the Old Yishuv? Yeah, that, that that's a that's a great question, and as and as you uh, really alluded to, it's like you know, like with many topics, it's very hard to say when is the beginning. Uh, you know, I think we can make an argument that the beginning of Zionism is uh, is when when Hashem says to Avraham, Lech Lecha, you know, go to Eretz Israel or go to the land I'm going to show you. And uh, to a certain extent, it's continued on from there in different ways, shapes and forms with different strokes and in uh, different ways. Um, but I think the important thing, just to sort of, you know, give a, a 10 second soundbite for everything that came before the 1800s is, is there was never a time period where when Eretz Israel was was Yudenrein. In other there's never a time period when the land of Israel was free of Jews. The population definitely waxed and waned and went up and went down. And there were different rebellions, different high points and low points, depending on who was in charge. Um, but but in general, under Ottoman rule, uh, the the uh, you know the, the Jewish community had some high points and some low points, and kind of the the uh, the 18th century, uh, you know, before we get to the the, the 1800s, the 19th century was um, was a low point and and sparked the beginning of a high point uh with with uh with the old yeshuv as as you referred to it and and that term like 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 any jewish term has a has a you know it can be a complicated term but we'll call it the yeshuv what became the old yeshuv when the new yeshuv started um that, that starts in the, in the in the mid 18th century with uh you know with uh with uh you know if we take a snapshot at that time we've got about you know roughly 25,000 jews in israel that were were a a remnant of of that influx that happened after the expulsion of spanish jewry mainly it's the sephardic community uh, but the beginning of Ashkenazim is, is in the 18th century and uh, starts first with the review of Hasid uh, and his disciples and then the disciples of the Baal Shem Tov, the disciples of the Vilna Gon. And, uh, and, and all those all those people come together to form what we what we now refer to as the as the old Yishuv. So, um, you know, we have we have a community in Israel that is that is predominantly centered, or at least the Jewish community is predominantly centered around the four holy cities. Uh, there's communities uh, in Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim already has a majority Jewish population in, um, in the mid-1800s. We got about 10,000 Jews there and about 10,000, about 5,000 Christians, about 5,000 Muslims. So you're already dealing with a majority Jewish population in Jerusalem. Uh, we have a community in Tzfas. We have a community in, in Hebron. And we have a community in Tiberia. You know, those are really the... the um, the major Jewish communities, you know, Akko also has a, uh, you know, has a presence, um, you know, according to many, that's where the Ramban is buried, according to many, that's where the Ramchal is buried, uh, if he's not buried in Tiberia, which is a whole different discussion for a different time, uh, but, uh, you know, th those, are the, those are the major population, Jewish population centers, 
And, um, and I think what, what's, what's important to kind of keep in mind when we're looking at this time period of the, of the pre-Zionist world is, um, you know, Israel was not a place where there was a lot going on, just period, by, by anyone's perspective. Uh, everyone likes to look at Mark Twain's quotes from the times uh from the time mark twain took a took a visit to to the land of israel and it, and it's um you know recorded in his own writings he, he wrote a, a book uh, on, on the topic um and uh you know i just have one quote here in my notes where he says uh the further we went the hotter the sun got and the more rocky and bare uh repulsive and dreary the landscape became there was hardly a tree or a shrubbery anywhere uh even the olives and the cactus those fast friends of worthless soil had almost deserted the country. And that's because the land of Israel was really just a backwater part of the Ottoman Empire. The the Ottomans at this point were already referred to as the sick man in Europe. Uh, it was a decrepit, uh, corrupt empire from a financial perspective, from a political perspective, from a socio-political perspective. Uh, this was after they had massacred the Armenians. Um, just, just, a, just a, you know, a, it was, it was a not, not a great nation in any way, shape, or form. Um, really almost from the, I think, from the death of, uh, of Suleiman the Magnificent, um, you know, a man definitely known for his modesty. And, uh, and until, until this time, people were just waiting for it to fall apart. And it somehow survived for, uh, for almost uh, 400 years and really a decrepit state. Um, but, you know, when we look at it sort of, you know, we, we you know, as I said, there may be, maybe, uh, you know, 25,000 Jews in the country before the uh, beginning of the Zionist movement. Um, there are only about 250,000 people, according to the most generous estimate, according to other estimates, I mean, the estimates range from 50,000 to 250,000. You know, there weren't really censuses taken in the Ottoman Empire. So there could have been, if we go to the most conservative estimate, there could have been as little as 50,000 people in the land of Israel at that time, half of which are Jews. You know that that's one estimate. Um, and and even if we go to the most the most liberal estimate, it's two hundred fifty thousand people, of which about ten percent is Jews. And now that's that's compared to uh, in the in the year eighteen hundred, there's about ninety one million Muslims in the world, and by the year nineteen hundred, there's about two hundred million Muslims in the world. So if we say there's you know roughly two hundred thousand. Muslims, if we go with a liberal estimate, living in the in the land of Israel in the in the mid uh, in the mid 1800s, well, you know that's that's uh, you know it's a fraction of a percent, it's one percent of the entirety of the Muslim world, uh, and uh, so, so you you know you get the sense of where this plays into the rest of the world. It's it's a it's it's a backwater nothing, you know, to to, to say the least. But um, but we're going to see. You know that in 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 my humble opinion and in the humble opinion of most Jewish historians, that really starts to change uh, dramatically in in the mid nineteenth century. And and that's really you know your question was what did the world look like before uh, you know in, in the mid eighteenth century before the first Aliyah? And and I think I think that's the snapshot. Excellent. Okay. So so now we have what you just mentioned, Rabbi Landis, the the first Aliyah, and uh, Jewish history divides the Aliyah Aliyot. First, second, third, fourth, fifth. Uh, I'm not sure what we're up to now. Maybe tenth, eleventh of of some sort. Maybe nefesh benefesh. It's the Hebrew is, letters is, at some point. At some point, it's aliyah bet, and then you know. Okay. Yeah. So, what 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 is the the first aliyah? What were the antecedents of the first aliyah, and uh, who came on the first aliyah? Yeah, so, so that's a great question, and and you know, like with many things, it's it's not like you know we we assume with hindsight that it was like uh, some group got together and said, okay, we're the first Aliyah, let's go, and then you know, like five years later, it's okay, we're the second Aliyah. Uh, it's it's more uh, you know, sort of after the fact that historians have gone back and give these give these identities. Uh, you know, it's like Lahav deal when we try and look at the Crusades, uh, you know, of which there are like ten. Um, you know, we know when the first Crusade started, and we have a good idea of the second and third. But it's like after that, like what was the fourth? Fourth, what was the fifth? So it, it's similar with the, with the different aliot, but uh, but but I think the you know the impetus for almost all of them was uh, was the the plight of the Jew in Russia. Um, you know, if we would look at one of the uh, you, you know th- those of us who were in the in the Sheris of Plata, living in the post Holocaust world, we think about you know the Nazis being the uh, the epitome of anti-Semitism and the epitome of Jewish hate um, in, in the 20th century and in, in sort of the modern era. 
but um, you know, if the Romanovs before them had had the in ingenuity and the technology and the organizational ability of the Nazis, they would have slaughtered far more than six million. I mean, it's, it's I think that's that's safe to say. There's there's no more anti-Semitic, Jew-hating um, empire, body, family, whatever you want to refer to them as in the history of the world, as as the Azaris Russia, as the the Romanov dynasty, and um, and and that's really the impetus for 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 almost all the Aliot that took place. At least before, uh, at least before um, you know World War II, and um, and 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 that's what we see. That every time there was a rise in the pogroms in Tsarist Russia, that was the beginning of the uh, you know movement of Jews to get out of Russia. And uh, and now the majority of those Jews go to America. Let, let's just, let's just let's just get it clear. The the first through we'll say fifth Aliyah is uh, or the first through fourth Aliyah I think is really hand in hand. With the uh, the end, the Jews just running away from Russia, and two and a half million of those Jews go to America. Um, so when we look at the uh, you know the roughly thirty five thousand that go to to Israel, that is a drop in the bucket compared to the, the during the same time period the two and a half million that go to America. Um, but because that, that's really the, that's really you know one one sense is the the impetus is just getting out of Tsarist Russia, and that's what Jews tried to do from 1880 to 1920 when um when by 1920 America shuts off the spigot of immigration and the British will when they take control of Israel uh they'll have sort of their their uh their two-faced approach to the Jewish community both welcoming and shutting off immigration at the same time but um but uh what drives the the 35,000 that choose to go to Israel as opposed to America is is uh I believe is really the Chovei Tzion movement now now when we talk about Chovetzion's movement, it wasn't really one one movement. There were many, many different groups that that affiliated themselves with what we now call Chovetzion. Um, but it was um, it was really taking the messianic ideal, the uh, the idea that the Jews will one day return to Eretz Israel or return to the land of Israel. And um, and that was the motivation, both from a, you know, sometimes from a religious perspective and sometimes from a secular perspective. But uh, but that was that was really what, what the drive was. And um, and the Chovet Sion movements throughout Europe would, uh, would would they had a lot of different uh, different activities. One was to help Jews to try and immigrate to in Israel. One was to raise money for the Jews in Israel. One was to help the Jews in Israel to become self-sufficient. And, um, and you know, the, the idea was essentially, at least of the Chovet Sion movement in, in Eastern European Jewry, is that the lights were being shut out on Eastern European Jewry. Um, you know, we're, we're getting out of here. Most of us are going to America. But uh, but the Chovet Sion movement said, once we're leaving, let's go to Eretz Israel uh, because that's where the Jews belong. Uh, we've been in, we've been, uh, we haven't had, we we haven't had uh, uh, sovereignty over the land of Israel now in a very long time. Uh, let's go back. Let's sort of force Hashem's hand and and, and let's do it. And um, you know, to that end, the uh, there were there were many spiritual leaders of this movement. There was uh, Ritzvi Hirsch Kalisher. There was there was uh, you know the Nitziv. Yehuda Berlin joined the movement. Rishmol Molover. Uh, These were a lot of the the Jewish uh, spiritual leaders of this movement, and and many secular leaders as well. Um, you know, one of the important figures I think to talk about, we talk about the first Aliyah and the um and the uh and the Chovet Sion movement was Baron Edmund de Rothschild. Uh, you know, there's there's a phrase that that is still uh, you know, I don't I don't know how much uh, amongst the the younger generation say, but definitely my generation or our generation uh in Israel, uh, and definitely our parents' generation for those who lived in Israel, uh there's there's a phrase that they would regularly say is Alcheshbon de Baron, uh, which means uh, let the Baron pay for it. <laughs> because that's really what financed uh, that's really what financed the the first Aliyah is Baron Edmund de Rothschild of the illustrious Rothschild family. And uh and he um, you know, many ways single-handedly supported this this movement of of Jews to go back to Israel again it was roughly 35,000 uh began after the um after the wave of pogroms in 1881 to 1882 and uh and uh it was the beginning of what we call the new yeshuv uh you know because there's already the yeshuv the yeshuv means settlement and they they basically looked at you know they, they, this was most mainly a secular crowd even though a lot of the drive was 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 a Philosophically religious, but the the crowd was more secular, and they came in and found the um, you know the remnants of the Sephardim who had been there a couple hundred years, and and the uh, and the the Ashkenazim who had only been there about a hundred years, and they said you know you're 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 the old school, you're you're now the old Yishuv. We're coming in, we're forming the new Yishuv. We're the new Jew. We're we're the new uh, the new and upcoming uh, 
people who are going to rebuild this land into a Jewish homeland. And and that's really the first Aliyah. That's what it is. Okay. So now, now, now we get um, move a little bit further on, not too far uh, as, as we get to the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And here comes Theodor Herzl. Um, Theodor Herzl is considered by all to be the father of Zionism. Picture is is everywhere. Um, why, why is Herzl, who, who's who's, if you want to call it a career as a Zionist, was probably short lived? Um, why is he considered the father of Zionism? That that, that is a great question, and uh, you know Herzl is is a very interesting historical character, as you kind of alluded to in your question, because uh, you know you were talking about someone who was about as secular as they come, didn't have a bar mitzvah, even though he lived upstairs from a shul in Budapest. Um, you know he was like many, only one or two generations, about two generations removed from traditional Judaism, but had basically abandoned it, didn't give his son a bris milah, um, you know, about as secular as they come. And um, in, in his own writings, it's, uh, you know, he, 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 he puts forth the claim that it was the Dreyfus affair, that he was, he was in France covering the Dreyfus affair for, uh, for the, the paper. He was a journalist from, uh, from Vienna. Uh, the, the New Free Press, the Nyafrae Press was his, it was his paper, and he was covering the Dreyfus affair, and he saw, the, uh, he saw how that very quickly became an anti-Semitic affair, as, 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 uh, Leon, as Zola refers to it as in La Affair in his book. Um, and, and he said that was really his impetus for the Zionist movement, because he saw that the Jews needed a homeland because there were many amongst the world who, who did not love the Jews and there's anti-Semitism was alive and well. Um, and that's really what he claims is his impetus. But, but, you know, if you kind of read through his writings, look into his personal history, it was brewing really before that in his head, uh, you know, growing up in Vienna under the, the mayor of Vienna was Karl Luger, who was a, you know, vehement anti-Semite. And it, it seems that he already came in touch with a lot of anti-Semitism in Vienna and had, was already kind of thinking about the topic of anti-Semitism and, um, but definitely, definitely coalesces after the Dreyfus affair in the in the late late eighteen hundreds in the in the late nineteenth century, and uh, when he when he uh, you know sort of gives shape to this idea, and he um, and he uh, and he and he and he starts to write the books that become uh, sort of the philosophical idea. Der Judenstaat is the most famous one, the Jewish state, and um, and and really, I think why he is the the father of modern Zionism is 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 because. You know, it's like we look at all movements and you look at the leader of all movements and, um, and you know, a lot of great Jewish leaders we can look to and great movement leaders. And, uh, you know, it's the ones who get the job done that that become the father of the movement. Um, you know, he was not like like we said, he was not the only one trying. There's a Chobetio movement was alive and well. He was jumping into it as a really a Johnny come lately. Uh, you know, we have Mordechai Emanuel Noah, who was another another person trying to organize and trying to get things done. So so, it, you know, the it existed, but but he was the one who got things done. And then, like you said, a very, very, very short period of time, you know, from the uh you know, from uh, from uh, you know, Der Judenstadt was published in um, in uh, in I think 1895, and he passed away in 1904. So really, it's a nine; it's less than a decade is that he's active as a leader of the Zionist movement. But but he just he's the one who gets it done, and he he spends that that you know less than a decade uh, just just tirelessly uh, spending his, his his family fortune, um, going from uh, from political official to political official. Uh, you know he he becomes the really uh, you know we we give the term political Zionism to what he was trying to do because through politics he was trying to get the land of Israel for the Jewish people. Now. You know, we, we call it Israel nowadays, but but uh, I, I know in um, one of my favorite books, Yehuda Avner's uh, uh, The Prime Ministers, he, he he talks about how how uh, you know before the modern state was founded, no one knew it was going to be called. No one said it was going to be called Israel, and it's like they they get the message that the 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 state was proclaimed right before Shabbos on 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 Hey Ear, nineteen forty eight, and uh, and they say you know people come and say we have a state, and they say great. What's it called? You know, is it called? Is it called Israel? Is it called Judah? Is it called like what's it called already? So, um, but but whatever it was, this idea of a of the the Judenstaat having a Jewish state, um, and uh, you know, Herzl was not married to the idea of it even being in Israel. Um, now he it's it's pretty clear in all his writings that he felt that that it would end up in Israel, but he was open to the Uganda plan that uh, that that Chamberlain puts forward. He was open to uh, a settlement in the Sinai uh, with the idea of if we start off in the Sinai, we can get 
to Israel. Uh, so his idea was primarily the Jews need a homeland, uh, you know, a place where where Jews could go and be free, a place where Jewish culture would be celebrated, um, not not a place where Hebrew would be where Hebrew would be spoken. The idea of Hebrew being the language of the Jewish state doesn't come along till till uh, Eliezer ben Yehuda and David ben Gurion. Um, you know, uh, uh, Herzl thought it would be French. Herzl spoke French. He thought it'd be French would be the the, the language of the um, the Jewish state. You know, I, I always like to to point out that um, that uh, that in, in sort of in the modern era, what was the state that was that was you know earliest considered uh, Hebrew as its language, and it was not Israel, it was America. Uh, you know, the Puritans in America wanted Hebrew to be the language of America, which would you know be a much different situation for us here in America. <laughs> that was the case, but uh, but uh, but you know, but again, it was really through his blood, sweat, and tears. We'd be learning English as a second language. As a, exactly, as a, exactly. Yeah. They'd be yelling, you know, whatever. It'd be a whole different world. But uh, but you know, he he just tirelessly. He met with Kaiser Wilhelm. He met with the Ottoman officials. He he came up with. I mean, just he was a, just a strategy, a political strategist of unbelievable ability. Uh, he met with Sultan. Um, he met with the Sultan and, and offered. Uh, you know, as we said, the Ottoman Empire was it was a decrepit bank corrupt empire he 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 said he you know jews would finance the consolidation of the debt of the empire and and he had all kinds of ideas he met with pope pius uh or at least uh you know the cardinals who worked with pope pius trying to get the support of the pope um and and i think that you know it's it's to that end he he uh he, he on his own expense, just just traveling across the world, and meeting with any world leader that he that he could meet with, and um, and not only that, but he really organized the Jewish community. He organized these Chovetzion movements and to what became uh, the Zionist movement. So uh, you know, it's it's a it's a well deserved title because while there are many others. And he was he and he was a Johnny come lately, uh, but he was a, a Johnny of much talent, we'll say, who really really just got the job done in a major way. So here, here you have a, a Western European Jew, Herzl, um, and as you mentioned before, Ray Landis, the, the the first wave is Russian, and now we have the first Zionist Congress, which is held not in Russia, well, maybe it couldn't have been held in Russia, but it's held in Switzerland, in Basel. Now, what's the significance of that Congress, the first one? Who attended it? What was its impact? That's a great question. And, and I, when I was writing my book, I had a couple of, I have a couple of different pieces in there about different Zionist Congresses. And it's actually interesting that nine of the 22 Zionist Congresses that took place before 1948 took place in Basel. And, and I was like, why Basel of all places? And I think it really plays back to uh, just that Swiss neutrality, that 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 sort of Swiss culture. And and that was the only place they could have it. You know, in other words, he uh, he wanted it in Germany actually, but it was originally scheduled to be in in Germany. But then it was they couldn't get a a hall that would rent to the to rent to the Jews, so to speak. So he went to Basel, and and uh, and and that's where um, and that's where it was held. And that's where, like I said, nine out of the first twenty two from uh, from uh, from eighteen ninety seven until nineteen. Forty-eight, they were there in Basel, so almost half of them were there. And um, the the conference was the, the, the congress was conducted in German, uh, not in, again, not in Hebrew. It's always important to point that out. Hebrew is going to be much later on the Jewish um, uh, on the on the you know in the discussion of Israel, uh, and not in Yiddish. Uh, the not not necessarily because he was opposed to Yiddish. That's going to I think the opposition to Yiddish will be will come a little bit later with David Ben Gurion and, and the uh, and the labor Zionists. Uh, but uh, but you know he, like you said he was a Western he was a Western European Jew and and he felt that German was the language. At least those who spoke Yiddish kind of understand German. Um, but uh, but German was the language it was it was spoken in. And there were two hundred eight delegates at that at that Congress. Now, 69 of those 208 represented the different Zionist organizations. We had, like we said, a number of these Chovet Zion organizations in the world. And uh, the delegates were from over, were from 17 countries. And there were 26 press correspondents. Again, with, with Herzl being the just dynamic uh, political strategist that he was, he didn't only reach out to the Zionist organizations, but he reached out to politicians. I reached out to, to the press as well because he knew that the more press that this conference got, the the better you know the, the the better the results would be, so to speak. And um and 
and you know there were a number of things that were were achieved at that at that Congress. Um, first off, the the Basel program was put together. What what, what subsequently became known as the Basel proposal, which um, which which had a number of, of statements, um, and uh, it said that their first the first piece of it was that um, the Zionist Congress, or what became the Zionist organization, would support the. Uh, the development of the land of Israel through through Jewish agriculturists, artisans, and business in, in Palestine, um, and the organization would bring together local and general events uh, to that end to try and support the development of Israel or the land of Palestine for Jewish community. Uh, they would strength, strengthen the Jewish feeling and national consciousness, and they would make the preparatory steps for obtaining the government approval, again, the political um, the government approval that was necessary for the Zionist purpose. Those were the four major major pieces of the Basel uh, of the Basel program that was put forth at the first Zionist Congress, and um, and, and you know that became the Zionist platform. And and beyond that, there are a few other things that that they achieved. They they founded the the, the what we now call the WZO, the World Zionist Organization, which still exists and still meets. Um, they adopted Hatikva as a national anthem because that was already like the song of many of the Chovet Zion uh, organizations. And um, and again, from a political perspective, they absorbed all these 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 Chovet Zion organizations under one banner. Uh, the idea of a people's bank, what became the Bank of Polim, was first established or at least discussed at the first Zionist Congress. Um, and uh, they elected Herzl as the president, obviously. They elected a number of other of the strategic uh, Zionist leaders, Max Nordau, who by far has the best mustache of all of world history. Um, you know, he was uh, he was elected one of the vice presidents. And um and uh, the the concept of JNF of the Karen Kayem, the Jewish National Fund, was at least discussed at the first Zionist Congress. It wouldn't come into play until the fifth Zionist Congress uh, in nineteen uh, in nineteen oh one, where they passed around Herzl's hat as the first blue pushka. Uh, but again, those are the major achievements from that first Congress. And then there would be many many subsequent, as we mentioned, there'd be twenty two before nineteen forty eight. They would happen uh, in the first few years it was every year. Then it went to every other year. Had a hiatus during World War One, picked up after World War Two. Uh, had a, I'm sorry, picked up until World War Two. Had a hiatus uh, after World War Two, obviously. And since the founding of the state in 1948, uh, the World Zionist Organization continues to meet every four years with delegates, uh, again representing all pro-Zionist organizations uh, in the world. And um, and and that that started in Basel in uh, in in, uh, in in 19 uh, in, in in 1896. And um and as of 1897, and Herzl kind of summed it up in his in his diary, a famous statement where he said, uh, "Were I to sum up the Basel Congress in a word, which I shall guard against pronouncing publicly, it would be at Basel I founded the Jewish state. If I said it out loud today, I would be greeted by universal laughter. In five years, perhaps, and certainly in fifty, everyone will perceive it." So, you know, it's interesting to point out that this the secular Jew who had become the leader of such a movement, almost with prophetic words, said within 50 years, we're going to have a Jewish state. And sure enough, 51 years later, um, there was a Jewish state. So uh, so that's what was achieved in that first Zionist Congress. Is it fair to say, Rabbi Landis, that the um, Zionist movement, as it picked up steam, ignited the imagination of world Jewry, at least even Eastern European Jewry? And as a result, there was opposition. And what forms of opposition were there to the Zionist movement? So that's a great question. Um, you know, like, like I mean, like all the questions you you have are great questions. So you know, I, I don't think there's such a thing as any Jewish movement or Jew, Jewish idea that doesn't have resistance. So there is definitely, um, you know, de- the answer is yes. It definitely ignited the minds of many of the European Jewry, of many of many amongst European Jewry. Um, now that that ignition was different, whether it was in Eastern Europe versus Western Europe. In Eastern Europe, it was it was. The lights are shutting out. Let's get out of here, as as we spoke about before. In Western Europe, it's the lights aren't shutting out. Everything's great for the Jews in Western Europe. Okay, a little thing here and there, um, but we ain't going anywhere. But we, you know, we need a Jewish home, at least for Eastern European Jews, for people to run away from anti-Semitism. That we need. So it, it definitely ignited, um, you know, on both both Western and Eastern um, European Jewry, and and you know, trickle trickle over to the Western to to the West as well to America. 
But, um, but you know, with any ignition of a movement, there comes controversy. And the controversy came from, from uh, I would say, from three major places. Um, first of all, the reform movement, which was already a force to reckon with within Western uh, European Jewry, not so much in Eastern Europe, in Eastern Europe, but for sure in Western Europe, the reform movement bitterly opposed um, um, bitterly opposed Zionism in its early movements um, in its early days. Uh, the reform movement, as a, as a as a movement, had already essentially erased Zionism from the from the Jewish uh, story, from their Jewish story that they were writing. Uh, they'd taken references to Zion and to return to Israel, to return to Jerusalem, out of their prayer book, and uh, and, and really had written it out of the religion in a major way. Uh, and, and you know, again, their 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 form of the religion, and um, you know, that's why I always I always say we're today the reform movement's trying to get a hold in the in the land of Israel is having a very hard time. It's like someone saying, "Have pity on me because I'm an orphan after I uh, you know killed my parent," uh, because they really did a lot to uh, to try and thwart the Zionist movement in its early days. And it won't be until until after 1948, or, you know, in some cases, long after 1948, that the the reform movement will kind of get on board. Now, it's not to say there weren't members of the reform movement who will who will who will join the Zionist movement before that. Uh, you know, there are definitely individuals. You know, here in Cleveland, there was Abba Hill Silver, who was a big reform rabbi and, and definitely an active Zionist. Uh, and um, and you know, there there were definitely definitely others um, like him uh, who who were pre-state Zionists, um, but at least in these early days, late 19th century, early 20th century, the reform movement was in opposition. Uh, the Bund, the Jewish communists, uh, were in opposition uh, because they claimed that Zionism, um, you know, Begin once asked one of the Bundist leaders in his, uh, in his, in his, he had an association with, he said, uh, you know, why are you against us? Uh, we're, we're, you know, a lot of people are trying to form a socialist state when they get to, uh, when they get to Israel. And he, and the response was, it's because you take all the great minds from communism, you make them Zionists. Uh, but they, uh, they saw that, uh, they saw a threat to their sort of communist ideal that they were trying to to uh to put forward uh they saw a threat there and then uh and then amongst the orthodox community it was very split um now there was um you know we mentioned some great orthodox minds that were they were very much part of Chovet Sion before Sirish Kalisher uh uh Molva and then Nitziv uh but there are others who are very against it and um and and you know the idea really comes from how we understand the Gemara and Ketuvos, the Gemara and uh the the Talmud and Ketuvot, page one ten B, uh Kufiot on Beis, uh, where it talks about the the three vows that were taken at the time of the destruction of the Second Temple, uh, and one of those is that the Jews would not uh not uh, the, the language of the Gemara is Bahima with the wall basically but not enforce go back or in mosque go back to the land of israel and um you know there's all kinds of interpretations the rambam the ramban the maharal uh vital as opposed to you know what this means was it only limited to a thousand years um but uh you know there are those sort of hardliners like uh like like reveal title bomb the satmarov who, who believe no that that's that's in, in effect you know we we the zionist stuff this is not a jewish thing um and and to, you know until today really the uh the descendants of reveal title bomb the satmarchasidim and the different offshoots are are very opposed to the zionist idea um now it's important i always i always think it's important not exactly the discussion now but important to make the distinction between the Turi karta and satmar they're not one and the same they're very very different um, you know, the Satmarov once visited Eretz Israel and someone asked if he was going to meet with Arafat. And he said, Arafat, why would I meet with him? He kills Jews. <laughs> like, you know, so there's a big distinction between, you know, this sort of, we'll call it the anti-Zionist Hasidic movement. And, and it, and it's like, like many things Jewish, it's not in any way monolithic. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's sort of the hardline approach. Uh, but even less than that, there was, uh, there was a, a lot of opposition within the Orthodox community. Uh, you know, it's interesting to point out that the um that the the founding of of a good Israel is not often talked about uh but the founding of a good of a good Israel where did a good Israel come from well good Israel was an offshoot of Mizrahi Mizrahi was the the Torah nationalist movement of the the Torah nationalist wing of the Zionist organization and for the first roughly 10 years of the Zionist organization, it was one organization kind of uniting Torah Jewry, the, uh, the Torah Jewry that, that let's say, will t- took a more liberal approach to the, to the Gemara and Kisubos and said that, no, maybe we can return to Israel. Maybe we do need to have a hand in this return. Um, that was represented by Mizrahi, and it was a really, kind of, for the most part, united front until 1912. Now, what happens in 1912 is that the 10th Zionist Congress, there was a motion put forth by Mizrahi that in the future Jewish state, that really 
religious schools would be funded by the state, which which ended up happening. But uh, but the, but the but the proposal was rejected by the Zionist Congress, and uh, and so at that point, a good Israel or, or what became a good Israel group broke away from Mizrahi and formed their own movement, uh, which became known as a good Israel. Um, and and again, took kind of a middle road approach that 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 Mizrahi within the Orthodox community was saying they were, they were fully on board with 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 the Zionist movement. You had the Satmar and the offshoots of the Satmar Hasidim say we're fully against this. And they had a good Israel kind of in the middle saying, you know, we're on board, but we're, we're not, we're not completely on board. We're, we're taking a wait and see approach. And that's kind of always been the approach of a good, you know, to be sort of involved in the discussion, very much involved in the government today in Israel, uh, but not necessarily with the religious fervor of the Mizrahi movement, um, which, which parenthetically did not start off with as religious fervor. It was really practical. And then with, with Rav Cook became more religious in nature. Um, but, uh, but, uh, yeah. So like anything Jewish, you had really, I think those three different prongs of, of resistance going on within the Jewish world. And to that end, the Zionist movement in pre-state Israel, and really in the first few decades of, of the modern state of Israel, um, it, it will not be a majority of the Jewish world. It won't be. It, 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 you know, these groups really represent the majority of the Jewish world, and therefore it'll be in many ways a fringe movement that will that will somehow be very very successful in its actions to get to the point where where by you know the the 1950s it it, it is the majority. Okay, the the Zionist movement, political Zionism, picks up steam. We're headed into the 20th century, and then the entire world is shaken up. Power of the balance of power and the great powers and the empires fall and rise. The Russian Revolution. Britain takes over, you have the mandate. Uh, why does Britain issue the Balfour Declaration? Is is that coming from a strictly political, geopolitical consideration? What was behind that declaration? Great question. So, so you know, again, we have to give, we have to give, uh, you know, we have to give credit where credit is due. I think we have to give credit to Herzl and, and political Zionism for, for at least putting the idea in the in the heads of the British politicians. And, um, you know, to that end, you had many amongst uh, the, the British Parliament that were um, that were anywhere from being out and out Zionists to be sympathetic to the Zionist cause. Um, but but ultimately, I think if we would look at if we would look at, you know, the, the backdrop that leads to the Balfour Declaration, uh, which which the Balfour Declaration is in 1917, about a year before or within a few months of the British conquering uh, the land of Israel from the Ottomans during World War One. And that is that at that point, World War One was at a stalemate. Um, you know, if you study the, the the history of World War One, you know, many great books on it. I, I'm a big fan of Barbara Tuckman's books, you know, Guns of August, uh, and, and uh, I forget the other one, uh, The Proud Tower, I think is the other one she wrote about World War One. Um, you know, great books that just show how, how uh, you know, the, the the Germans and the Kaiser thought that this would be quick and easy. And and, and, and even with the French resistance, they thought it'd be quick and easy. And it ended up into the almost a three-year stalemate. And, and the British, in looking for a way to to break the stalemate, said um, said, okay, maybe if we come in from a different angle, that that'll break things. So they were looking at the Ottoman Empire, who was the German ally, and uh, and they said maybe if we can uh, you know come in from a different direction, that can that can break the stalemate. And, and to that end, that 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 was the. Uh, with impetus for the Mediterranean campaign of World War One, and um, the, the idea that became discussed within the British Empire was was well, you know, we we know that the the uh, you know that the Arabs, so to speak, are 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 going to be their allegiances with the Ottomans. Um, you know, there's no there was no uh, Palestinian movement at that time. There's no Arab nationalism at that time. That's all. You know, even the, the most liberal uh, understanding is it doesn't begin till 1920. Maybe it really doesn't really begin till 1960. But okay, that's a different discussion for a different time. Uh, but they said, you know, maybe we can get some support behind what we're doing uh, within within Palestine and, and within world Jewry. And and uh, and that can help. To, you know, again, they're just looking for whatever they were, they were almost grasping at straws, trying to figure out what could break the stalemate of World War One. And they said, okay, maybe if we come out in support of the Zionist movement, and we come out publicly in support of the Zionist movement, that um, you know that that'll that'll be that'll be the straw that'll break the camel's back. That'll be something that'll that'll break through the stalemate, and uh, we'll get more world Jewish support on this on the side of the Allied cause. Um, 
you know, unlike in World War II, where where rural Jewry, rural Jewry was, you know, completely on the side of the Allies, that was not the case in World War One. You had many, many Jews uh, fighting on the side of of, of Germany. And the Ottomans and the Austro-Hungarians, uh, you know, Rev, uh, you know, it's always the irony is pointed out how Rav Yosef Breuer, uh, who became the Rav in Washington Heights, New York, was a was a was a World War One veteran of on um, the Germans, and he, uh, while the Nazis were were gassing Jews in Auschwitz, he was still receiving his pension from the uh, from the German army in Washington Heights. So, uh, but yet, you know, it was it was a it was not clear the Jewish community was was split on 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 who they support. You know, you had Russian Jews, you had German Jews, you had Hungarian Jews, yeah, you know, and all sides and uh, the idea of the british empire is that if we do this maybe we can get support for ally cause you know within the austria-hungarian empire within the german empire uh for sure within america this was really before america had come into the war in any active way and uh and, and maybe this will be maybe this will be the uh this the, the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back and will be the we'll, we'll turn the tide um you know i don't, I don't think, quite think that's how it played out but um, but what's just you know really fascinating, I think, is number one, the, the the language of the Balfour Declaration was very vague, and I think purposely very vague. Um, you know that I, I my humble opinion is it said nothing about Jewish sovereignty. Right? There was no no idea on the part of any British um, official that the uh, that in the Balfour Declaration they were saying, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're going to support a independent Jewish country in the land of Israel. They thought that, you know, we're going to conquer Israel. Um, you know, Barbara Tuckman, again, writes a great book called, uh, wrote a great book called uh, The Bible and the Sword, where she talks about the British love affair with the land of Israel, how it went back hundreds of years. And, uh, and uh, you know, they said, we're going to conquer Israel. It's going to be part of the British Empire. This was still very much uh, in, the, in the time period of Imperial Britain. And, um, and that's where we're going to put the Jews, right? It's going to be the, the Jewish state of the British Empire. And, uh, and we're going to build it up by bringing a lot of other Jews in there. Um, but it's going to still be just part of our empire. That's, that's, what, they, that's what they had in mind. I, I, really, do, I really do believe that. Um, and, uh, and the letter was, it was a letter written by... Uh, by Lord Balfour, who was the British foreign minister, to um, to Lord Rothschild, again, another Rothschild, who was part of the uh, the House of Lords, and uh, meant to be disseminated to the Jewish community for that purpose of really just gaining the support of the worldwide Jewish community for the Allied world effort in World War I. Now, what's fascinating is they stuck to it. Or, well, I should say they stuck to it because they, they didn't stick to it. Almost, as, uh, But, they, but they, 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 they incorporated it into the British mandate. Now, shortly after it, they they do everything possible to try and back away from it. But which, but that was always a step that I found fascinating. That that the, when the mandates come about in the Treaty of Versailles and the aftermath of World War One, they they do do incorporate the the Balfour Declaration into that, and then spend about you know fifteen years trying to back away from it. When one visits um, Mount Herzl, Har Herzl, so obviously the grave of Theodor Herzl is front and center. But not far from Herzl's grave is the grave of Vladimir Zev Jabotinsky. Uh, who was Jabotinsky? Who were the revisionists? And what was their impact on the history of Zionism? Yeah, so, so Zev slash Vladimir slash Wolf Jabotinsky uh was the leader of what um what the uh the uh you know I, I always i always say that with the the creation of this name they uh i think it was really bad pr but the uh but the uh the original name was uh Hatsionim Harivisinistim um or Hatsohar is how they became known as and uh, which means the revisionist Zionist and and I think the problem with that name is is well, it explains what they're trying to do. That there was a there was a a philosophy of Zionism that that had existed for um, you know early the Hatzorah really comes about as a movement in 1925. So the Zionist movement, at least as an organized movement, had already been around for about 30 years. And and uh, the the leading philosophy of the Zionist movement was political slash or political plus practical Zionism. The idea of politically and through settling, we're going to take over little bits of the land of Israel and, and piece together a state. Um, Jabotinsky said, no, he said, that's not what we're doing. He said that this is the biblical homeland of the Jewish people. Uh, we, we conquered it at the time of Joshua. We conquered it from, uh, from, you know, roughly Beersheba up to, uh, the southern part of what is today Syria and Lebanon. We conquered it in the east, uh, at least several hundred miles into what we now call Jordan. Uh, 
And, and that's the biblical homeland. That's the biblical homeland of Jews. That's what Jews have a right to. And that's what we're fighting for. And we're going to fight for the entirety of the biblical homeland. So, so he felt that the premise of the, um, of, of, of the, uh, of, uh, of Herzl and Lunger and Nordau and eventually Ben Gurion and, and, and all of these people was, was they, they, they were just missing the boat. It's not just that the Jews need a home. We once had Israel. So we'll go piece together some state over there. They said, no, this entirety, the discussion starts with the entirety of biblical Israel from the biblical maps of the time of Joshua. That's our, that's our map. That's what we're talking about. And, um, and, and to that end, he organized a, uh, he organized the movement, as we said, at Sohar. And it was more of a hardline movement. It was a, from really from its inception, it was a hardline movement. Now, now Jabotinsky himself what, what he really, I, I believe, gets deserves a lot of credit for is he was the one who began the idea of, of Jews defending themselves in the land of Israel. We already had the idea of uh, cross-settlement um, attacks going on in this time with the Jewish community that was settling in Israel. And Jabotinsky was was really the first to organize uh, uh, just just protection, Shmirah, right? The the just protecting the Jewish community. Um, but to that end, that really changes into uh, that's where a lot of the militant ideas come from. As as no, this is biblically all our land, and either we're going to get it by hook or by crook, right? You, you want you want to do it by politics? We want to do it by the sword, and that wasn't exactly it, but that that practically was a lot of their philosophy. And you know, to that end, it becomes an international movement. Um, the uh, they they are able to start a youth movement, which actually predates the youth movement predated the organization of Atzor by two years. The 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 youth movement was known as Beitar, not to be confused with the soccer team in Israel nowadays. Uh, but but Beitar, the, the name Beitar was chosen number one because they looked at the Bar Kokhba well, so, 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 Some who say that the revisionists were very extreme say the same about the fans of the Beitar soccer club. Right. The name comes from somewhere, right? Yes. So, 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 uh, but so Beitar was first of all because of the Jewish resistance uh, that took place at the time of Bar Kokhba, that the, the head was headquartered in the city of Beitar. And then also it was a, a tribute to, it was Brit Yosef uh, 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 Trumpledor, who Yosef Trumpledor was one of the, the early members of the, uh, of the movement who was killed in an Arab raid in Tel Chai and at Kirat Shmona. Kirchmona area and um and uh therefore was also the, the acronym of base uh, of Beit Yud Tuf uh to be a um to be a remembrance of him. But the movement organizes in it and it and, it, and again you get a little bit of a later start than some of the other movements, but they they again spread across the world. Now the impact was interesting on the rest of the movement because the rest of the Zionist movement at this point was really um overruled or overrun, if you will, by by what becomes known as labor Zionism, uh, led by David Ben-Gurion and, and, and his cohort. Um, and already at the same time when Atzor is organizing, that's where we have the Hishtad roots, the, la- the labor federations start at the, the, you know, the labor movement really start in earnest in the land of Israel. And um, as far as early impact, I think the early impact of, of Hatzor on the Hishtad root and, 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 and what becomes Mapai uh, and Mapam is that uh, is that it, it forces them to coalesce? In other words, once you know, a lot of times when you have a more right wing movement established, well, that leads the left wing to be able to organize and coalesce, and any of their fringes come together. So I think in the from from kind of 1920 until arguably 19, 1975, 1976, uh, for almost 50 years, the existence of, of, of Soar, which becomes Chayrut, which becomes Likud, is, uh, is, is really just, just helps the, what, uh, you know, initially is called Mapai, then becomes labor, or Mapai splits off into Mapam, becomes labor. Um, it, 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 it helps them to coalesce because you have a right wing challenging the left wing. Uh, but ultimately what it does is it, it gives voice to, to many of those who felt disenfranchised and not represented by by that mapai slash labor movement and and that's how eventually Likud will will really come from the from the minority and come from the uh almost come from the underground to become uh you know with Begin will become the the leadership in Israel um and then you know we'll have you know about a I guess about two decades of back and forth of some unity governments and, and I think really that what begins with Jabotinsky in 1920 is what's overflowing in Israel today 
In other words, the the uh, the the protests that are going on right now has very little to do with judicial reform. In other words, judicial reform was kind of the uh, I think the flicker that that set off the tinderbox, but uh, but but uh, it has very little to do with judicial reform. <laughs> uh, you know, when I here in America and I talk to people about the, the what judicial reform is and all that, and 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 you know the, the judiciary in Israel and the need for reform, and they're like. That kind of makes sense, but then why is it causing so much strife? And the answer is because no, it's it's the fact that that it's the um, you know the remnants of of labor that are realizing that uh, that the remnants of um, of of, uh, of the revisionists are are in power and are in power kind of w- without any hopes of changing in the near future. And and that's I think where the where the uh, civil unrest that's going on in Israel right now is coming from. It's really the uh, it's really the uh, the uh, the uh, you know the hundred year culmination of what began in the nineteen twenties with uh, with uh, Zev Jabotinsky. It's interesting mentioned he's on, he's in Har Herzl because because he initially wasn't allowed to be buried there. He was because uh, he passed away in New York. And um, and I think it wasn't until Levi Eshkol. Ben Gurion would not let him be exhumed and brought to the land of Israel. I think it was Levi Eshkol who finally let him uh, let his remains be brought to uh, be brought to the land of Israel and be brought to Mount Herzl. Well, uh, earlier this year, my, my wife and I went and visited um, Israel's Grand Canyon, Mitzpeh Rimon, and on the way back realized that we were going to pass by Stay Boker. So we we went in and uh, we did the whole tour. And uh, they have this, it's, it's very, imp- it's very impressive, you know, in terms of the, the, the life that Ben-Gurion lived when he retired and moved to Stay Boker. They had a movie of the young Ben-Gurion and the opening scene is, is, you know, he's a young, young man in his early twenties and there's this whole event happening in a, in a synagogue. And he tells all his friends, this is not for us anymore. And he just starts firebranding about, Zionism and and labor and socialism. We've got it. How does Ben Gurion? How does David Green become the leader of the modern state of Israel? Labor Zionism, as you presented earlier. Yeah. So so the the way that uh, the way that he gets there, um, and, and and I'd love to see that movie. I'll have to check it out next time I'm in Israel. My, my wife and I are actually planning on Sunday to go see Golda, the Golda Meir movie. Okay. Um, we're really looking forward to that. Um, you know, I, I I can put a plug in here for one of my programs. I have a program on Torah anytime and on Jewish anytime called uh, Profiles in Jewish History. And we just did Golda Meir a few weeks ago. So okay, so you absolutely. can either see the movie or you can watch my lecture. Both. Right, so watch my lecture Both. First, you can see how accurate the movie is. But uh, but I'm, I'll let you know afterwards how how good it was. But um, but you know, I, like I try. This- I try to tell my kids about Golda because when I was a kid growing up in Philadelphia, the school took us to the airport when Golda came, and we sat there waving our flags and said Golda, Golda. But to them, it's really ancient history. Ancient, ancient history. history. And, and look, and you know, you asked me about Ben Gurion, not Golda. And I, I have a lot of a lot of feelings, both positive and negative, about Golda Meir. But she was suffice it to say, she was a extremely dynamic uh, woman who was who was ahead of her times in many ways, and. Uh, and did amazing things in her life, but uh, but Ben Gurion, um, you know, l- like we were saying, the, the the part and parcel of the first through fifth Aliyah being, um, which were the, the, is the first through fifth, are all the pre World War II Aliyot, and and they were predominantly Eastern European Russian coming from the Pale of Settlement, which meant they were heavily influenced by socialist ideas, and, and therefore it was you know socialism ruled. The, the idea of socialism really ruled pre-state Israel and in the first thirty years of the state, and um, so it was it was you know like we said, uh, Feirut, uh revisionists were were marginalized completely. Um, and it's the point where I think Ben Gurion, until until Kahana was in the Knesset, I'm sorry, uh, the Begin until Kahana was in the Knesset, had the record of being expelled the, uh, <laughs> the, the you know the greatest amount of times from from the Knesset. Um, but uh, but uh, but Ben Gurion was um, you know like like you like you said he was a a labor Zionist. Uh, he believed in this concept of the new Jew about how in the state of Israel they were the state of Israel that would be formed would be a new Jew. Uh, there would be no more religion. It would it would be socialism. They were building the kibbutzim and uh, and you know one of my favorite books I think is a must 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 read for everybody nowadays is uh, David Brog's uh, Reclaiming Israel's History. Uh, he does a great job of explaining, you know, also telling about Ben-Gurion in those days when he came, uh, you know, and, and he, uh, you know, and he volunteered. 
involved in the, you know, was involved with the, the early kibbutzim and it was working to settle the land and, and ended up in Steboker, like you said, when he retired. And, um, and, but, but again, he was the, um, the, the talented head of the labor movement. Now, he was the one who organized the Hishtad Rud. He was the head of Hishtad Rud. He was the head of what became the Jewish agency. Uh, now, the Jewish agency, the, the head was actually appointed by the British. Um, and, um, but he was uh, he was the uh, he was you know really recognized for his leadership skills in pre-state Israel. And to that end, uh, you know the Jewish agency became like the pre-state government. And what was the Jewish agency's leadership became the leadership of the country. Um, now it is interesting to point out that in World War One, um, Ben Gurion his 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 uh, affiliation, so to speak, was with the Ottomans. He did not side with the British. He sided with the Ottomans, and uh, and to that end, tried to help the Ottomans. He was not he was not necessarily on board with Jabotinsky, who uh, who was trying to help the British. Um, but uh, he was on board with helping the Ottomans. But nevertheless, was expelled by the Ottomans to uh, uh, from from Jaffa to uh, to, uh, to to Crete, I believe it was, where they were expelled to um, when when the Jews of Jaffa were expelled. Um, but uh, but again, just a very talented leader, really organizes the socialist movement. Um, and to that end, when the socialist movement becomes the, becomes the government, um, he he's the leader because he's in the right place at the right time and the one who, similar to Herzl, got got the job done when the job needed to get done. There's so much more to talk about, but you know, our time is coming to an end. So let's just try to close with this. Uh, today, people talk about after 75 years of the modern state of Israel, post-Zionism, neo-Zionism, the death of Zionism, the beginning of Zionism. How do you see it, Rabbi Landis, from the historical perspective of the Zionist movement? Where are we now? Is is Zionism dead? And and what does that even mean when someone says Zionism is dead? What is that? We have a state now. So put put it in perspective, if you can, for us. Yeah, this is this is this is a great question, and I'm actually I'm very passionate about this question, and 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 hopefully my answer will be to this question, (laughs) and 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 that is you know where a lot of times uh, I think it's Jim Collins, and I think he was quoting someone else when he said this, but he but Jim Collins writes in his book Good to Great, he says good is the enemy of great. You know, a lot of times when we get to something that's good enough, we're happy, we're complacent, and we forget that uh, we have the ability to be great. And I think that that the Jewish people as a whole, the Jewish nation as a whole, uh, you know, could very easily fall into that trap because we can look at a situation now. And, you know, according to many opinions, we're the first Jews, not in not in 2000 years or the first Jews in 2500 years who can look at the land of Israel and say and see say that we can see with our own eyes the majority of the world Jewish population living in the end of Israel in the land of Israel. According to many opinions, that didn't happen during during Baishani, during the Second Temple. Uh, during the Second Temple, the majority of the Jewish population stayed in Babylon, and it was only uh, you know half to less than half that went that went back to Israel. And um, so you know whether it's the first in twenty five hundred years, the first in two thousand years, regardless, we, you know it, it's remarkable that you have seven million Jews living in the land of Israel, and you have a lot less than that living in the diaspora nowadays. Uh, you know, probably less than five million living in the diaspora nowadays. And and you know, looking at the demographics, that that those numbers are going to continue to go in in the in the you know repelling directions, where you're going to have diaspora Jewry continue to shrink and uh, and Israeli Jewry continue to grow. And uh, you know, we can look at it, and like you said, we can say, well, we, we got a state, you know, we got a sovereign state. Okay, it's an imperfect sovereignty, is a challenge sovereignty uh, in some parts more than others, uh, but you know we're, we're we're there we're good we're done and uh and i think to that end good can be the enemy of great and and i think that's our challenge sometimes when we look at uh you know the 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 rambam's uh 12th principle uh of, of amuna the yigdal ikrim of, of amuna where it's uh you know is, is summarizing that imam means summarizing yigdal but the idea that uh that you know we anticipate mashiach we anticipate the messianic era and we're not there yet we're close you know, there, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's some, there's some, you know, there's a lot of things that have happened, but a lot of things haven't happened. We, we don't yet have the majority. We don't, we don't yet have the entirety of the Jewish people living in the land of Israel, and we don't yet have full sovereignty recognized by the rest of the world, and we don't yet have Melech Mashiach. We don't have the, the, the idea of the reinstitution of the divinic monarchy. We don't have the base of Midash. We don't have the temple. We don't have the Korbanos. We, you know, we're, there's a lot that we're lacking. 
And, and to that end, I think that that uh, the the idea of Zionism, not necessarily political Zionism or cultural Zionism or or even revisionist Zionism, but just the the idea of um, Right, that we 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 dream and we daven for the return to Zion and to Jerusalem, and 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 not not as it is now, but in the days of yore, when we when we had that complete sovereignty, when we had the base of Mitzvah, when we had when we had a king from the house of David, when we had the Kohen Gadol. You know, we're gonna we're just uh, you know three weeks shy of Yom Kippur, and we're gonna talk about. Uh, Mare uh, HaKohen, what we saw on Yom Kippur in the base of Mitash and how glorious it was and, and how beautiful that was for the Jewish people. And we're going to come to Sukkot and talk about the Simchas Beis HaShueva. We don't have any of that. So, so to that end, that um, you know, I think this is this is the uh, early danger uh, that was perceived by the traditional community of Zionism. That if it's secular in nature, well, that's going to fizzle out. And, and and I think the secular drive has fizzled out because you got a sovereign homeland, you got a place for Jews to go, you have a, you know, all that's proven true. So yeah, the secular idea, I would say is dead. <laughs> but the religious idea, I think, is very much still um, underachieved or unachieved. And and to that end, we as Jews, you know, like we just sat down in Tisha B'Av a few weeks ago, we still have to cry a tremendous amount because, you know, we want it all. We want the grave. We don't want the good. The good's not good enough. And, and I think it's beholden on all of us to keep that in mind, um, you know, with everything we do have and be appreciative of everything we do have, we can't forget that everything we don't have and that we, uh, and that we still want. And to that end, I think, uh, I think Zionism is still very much alive. Uh, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, again, uh, Rabbi Pinchas uh, Landis, as you can see on the back, uh, to be followed on Jewish anytime, Torah anytime, obviously here on Sparks of History as well and um, urge all our viewers and listeners um, to look out for Today in Jewish History, which uh, is going to hit the bookshelf soon. And it's just a fascinating, fascinating book on Jewish history. And uh, Rabbi Landis, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it very, very much. Thank you so much, Rabbi Lieberman. And I've, I've appreciated it as well. I, thank you so much. Thank you.